Well, hey, good morning. Hey, uh, if I've not met you before, my name is John. I'm the pastor here at the Center Church. I don't know if you have this at your house. At my house, there's a certain time of the week in which uh, there's nothing left to eat, or so I think. Have you ever been there where it's like, I just have nothing left to eat? But you can't go to the grocery store for whatever reason, so you have to like scrap together the very remains of whatever you had in your cupboard. That's kind of like me playing drums today. Uh, I, I was like the sixth on the list, and I said, I will do anything to help my wife, Lindsay. Yes, we're married. I'm that lucky. And, uh, and so that's why I'm doing that, and I kind of like teleported out here, and here I am. So it's really, really good to be, to be with you. Uh, I'm so excited that you're here. If this is your first time, man, welcome. I'm so thankful that you uh, stopped in uh, with us this morning. And we're actually kind of on a road trip of a series, and so you're going to get to hear more about that in a moment. Now, by just looking at me, uh, you probably know I was not born in 1977, okay? That probably goes without saying. But in 1977, something happened in our world. Now, maybe you're not in tune with NASA or all the things that they've done over the decades, but NASA put together this brilliant team of, of scientists, of nurses, of doctors, of ethnographists, of some of the brilliant minds of our culture, and said, let's put together a phonograph called the Golden Record. If, does anyone else remember this besides me who wasn't actually alive? Okay, perfect. So there's a few of you. But the Golden Record, they sent out these phonographs on the Voyager 1 expedition, hoping to connect with extraterrestrial life. And they had to decide, what would we want them to know about planet Earth? And they put together images and sounds. And we're actually just going to play and show you some of those. Now, what I think is fascinating about this is that they chose construction noises to, to kind of let us know and let those aliens know what Earth is all about. They pictured images of a lady eating in the grocery store, which that's illegal, by the way. So aliens, you better not follow suit like that. I don't know why they put that picture in there. Uh, let's assume she bought them already. Uh, there's some really quirky things. They put Morse code signals like you're hearing right now. They put a foghorn just in case aliens wanted to show up and make sure the foghorns were all working. Like, such a weird, bizarre thing. And they put this together to say, let's make sure we know what makes Earth, or planet Earth, planet Earth. And so they put pictures of skyscrapers, massive buildings. They put pictures of people, different ethnicities. There's clips of children talking and playing. There's pictures of people drinking soda and, and kind of cheersing one another with beers. Like there's all this weird stuff. There's violin music in case they found any extra musical aliens. Like picture signs and then them getting this. It would be zero help. Uh, but they were dis they've determined to figure out what makes Earth Earth, the golden record. Now, maybe you've not thought about that question as much. Maybe you thought about another question that's a little bit more at home in us. What makes a person a person? Now, you may say, okay, it has to do with their soul, what's inside, kind of the interior life. That's what a person is. Maybe you said maybe it's their body, the fact that they have physical capacity, the fact that they can move and breathe and interact with other human beings. That's what makes a person. Other people would argue it has to do with the mind. Former philosophers from many centuries ago would say, I think, therefore I am. That's what makes a person a person. Now, you may not walk around every day being concerned with that question, but I bet you've wrestled with this one. I know I have. What makes me, me? What makes John, John? What makes you, the person that you are today as you sit here in these seats, what makes me, me? And what makes 
you use. See, the, the answer to that question defines everything you do, not just in your life, kind of in a big abstract term, but tomorrow. You will make decisions based on the identity you hold on to. The, the person that you think you are will determine literally the rest of your life. So this question has massive implications for all of us. And we probably have people in our lives, if we were really honest, that they are consumed with that question. And sometimes it relates to body image. You and I have friends, we have people we know that they obsess over how they look. And so it's the gym seven days a week. It's plastic surgery. It's a new diet every couple months. It's a, a concern that every time they look in a mirror, am I making progress towards the, the me I want to be? Others of, others of you are like, I don't care about my body at all. You care about your accolades and your professional achievements. And that's caused you to stay maybe at the same job for a really long time, hoping to finally get to the peak. Maybe it's caused you to bounce around. Maybe you're sitting here today only having lived in Byron for a couple of years. Maybe it was a job opportunity that moved you here. And you wanted to figure out what makes me, me. Is it the professional life? Is it the, deg the degrees? Is it the plaques on the wall? Like, what makes me, me? Maybe for others of you, it has to do with uh, your digital life, making sure that everybody thinks your life is pretty much perfect, whether it's the right haircut or going to the right shoe stores or making sure you've got enough followers and likes on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is, you have to make sure that that digital life is well curated because if anyone could see kind of the chinks in your armor, you would lose who you really wanna be, the me that really is inside. What makes me, me? Now, we've been taking this road trip through different letters of Paul and some of you may have been around church, maybe this is a new experience for you. But Paul was a missionary who formerly was a terrorist. And Paul had a lot to say about life in Christ. He had a lot to say about what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. He really cared about making sure that people understood the answer to that question, what makes me, me? I want you to turn, if you have a Bible or a device, to Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, we get kind of a snapshot of everything Paul would go on to write about in the letter. Now, we've been journeying through different books of the Bible every single weekend in this road trip series. And so don't worry, we're not literally reading Ephesians 1-1 to the very end. We're just gonna kind of take a 30,000 foot view of this incredible book that you should go home and read. It'll take you like 15, 20 minutes. It's worth the read. But in Ephesus, this city, Paul had spent almost all of his missionary time in this one town. Ephesus was large. It was larger than Grand Rapids. It was kind of the epicenter of culture. The Greek god Artemis was worshipped here. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, where literally Artemis was the god of life and death and sexuality, which for most people, those three things matter most to them in the span of their life. It's, am I going to live? How am I going to die? And how's the in-between going to be? Like life, death, sexuality. And so Artemis was worshipped. There was a ton of trade and commerce based in Ephesus, it was the place to be. But it was also the place, if you were wanting to kind of recreate yourself or have a new identity, you went to Ephesus. What makes me, me was the primary question Ephesians were asking, and Paul answers it. Now, I want to read just these 10 verses over you. Maybe you're not familiar with Scripture. Maybe you are, and you've read this before. But in Ephesians 2, verse 1, here's what Paul writes. As for you, talking to this young church plant in Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, he's talking about the enemy, the forces 
against Christ in our world, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is so rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, because it's by grace you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love those verses. I love the reminder that that is. I've only been following Jesus for about 10 years, and that for me still is such a centering passage to remind myself of who I am. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, and maybe, how many of you would say, I really love English, I love grammar, I'm the person that when an email is misspelled, I send it right back with the corrections? Okay, so I'm not the only one, I appreciate that. Some of you that work with me are like, that's you, you dummy, like, yeah, it is me, like, I am totally, I will, I will not uh, hide from that, that is me, I'm a spell check guy. And uh, what is so funny about that is when you look at a passage like Ephesians 2, did you catch something that's very important in English grammar? Maybe not. Okay, I didn't catch it either, so don't worry. This took a couple years of understanding and study, but there's something that Paul does in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 that's quite unique. He writes almost all of these action verbs in past tense. ED is almost at the end of every single one of these verses in Ephesians 2, and he's saying, this is not who you need to be, this is not the kind of identity you have to aspire and, and work hard and achieve and earn. No, this is just who you are. In Christ, you, you were dead, but now you're alive. In Christ, you used to follow the ways of this world. In Christ, the chicken's ready. In Christ, you had, sorry, uh, I'm going to be distracted. In Christ, uh, this was the way you used to live, but you don't have to live that way anymore. You formerly walked this way, but now there's hope. Now there's grace. There's an opportunity for new life. There's a new chance. There's a new personhood awaiting you. There's a new identity. What makes you you is what God has already done. That's your identity. It's an incredibly important thing. But if all of us were honest, if all of us had enough time to be in deep conversation with one another, here's what I think would be true. And this is true of me. This is, this is me preaching to myself. Too many of us allow our insecurity to define our identity. Too many of us. It's not something we cognitively do as in we make a decision to just let that insecurity run rampant through our life. It just kind of happens. It's indirect. It's it's something that we just flow into. If we're not careful, we just walk right back into old ways of thinking, right back into an old identity, right back into the same sins, patterns, and negative ways of doing life that we did before we ever met Christ. It's something that happens too many of us allow, and this is not a new tactic the enemy uses. You're probably familiar with that. And a couple months ago, 
we did a series called Voices in the Wilderness. Some of you were here for that. And you remember we journeyed through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, this incredible picture of, of him just sitting in the wilderness, toiling back and forth with the enemy. And he was questioning so many different things. But the main thing he questions is his identity. If you remember in Matthew 3, Jesus gets baptized. Some of you have been baptized. Some of you are considering that step even today. You're thinking about, maybe that's the next step for me in my walk with Christ. And just a, a caveat, it is. It always is. If you've never been baptized or you were as a kid, it's your next step. But Jesus gets baptized in Matthew 3. And you may think, well, yeah, he's Jesus. Why do you need to get baptized, though? Isn't he like the Son of God? Doesn't he have it kind of spiritually together? And that's true. But Jesus gets baptized as an act of obedience, and something incredible happens. If you remember the story, the heavens literally render. They open up. They tear open, and God's voice comes from on high. And he only says a couple things, but they're so important. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's all he says. And isn't it fascinating that in Matthew 1 and 2, Jesus has done nothing? It's just his identity. You are a son of God, and that's all that matters. Not what you've achieved, not how much you own, not how nice your lawn is, your identity in Christ. That is really all that matters. It drives Jesus for the entire rest of the book of Matthew. The rest of the gospel story is hinged on his identity as a son of the Father. It's an incredible truth. And what does Satan challenge in Matthew 4? His same identity. He says, if you are the son of God. If you are, all these things that the Father has just affirmed about you just a couple verses early, if he challenges his, his identity, and too many of us, when that identity gets challenged, we just default to our insecurity. Uh, you may not believe me, but here's a statement that I think is true for me. I think it's true for many of us. Identity matters because the best predictor of what I will do tomorrow is who I am today. The very best predictor, if you want me to determine like the next year of your life, let's sit down and figure out where do you place your identity. If it's in work, you'll work harder. If it's in a relationship, you'll spend more time there. If it has to do with, with being in the right neighborhood or driving the right car, you will do everything possible in your life to, to make those things happen. If it's in your digital life, you'll spend extra time filtering and extra time on your app and extra time doing things that make you look and feel a certain way when you go online. It doesn't really matter because all of us, just on a basic level of identity, the best predictor of what we're going to do tomorrow is our identity. It's who we are right now. Now, if you don't believe me that this is so automatic, I need to Maybe go to another authority. Maybe you're like, okay, I understand the scriptures. Maybe you don't believe me at all. I want to go to one of the higher authorities, at least in our home, and that's the show The Office. Okay, so uh, Dwight and Jim have taught me a lot of life lessons. I'm sure they've taught you some. If you're not familiar with the show, that's okay. You have like the next couple of years to watch through it, okay? This is only Lindsay and I's fifth time watching through this show. Now, I want to set this up. So Dwight and Jim, if you're not familiar with The Office, have kind of this antagonistic relationship. Jim is kind of the smart guy of the office. He loves to prank Dwight. Dwight is slightly gullible, a little bit naive, and falls for a lot of Jim's tricks and often has his own kind of moments throughout the show. But I want to show you just the beginning of this scene, and uh, then we'll keep talking. Hey, Dwight, do you want an Altoid? What do you think? 
exploit or an output. Okay. Altoid? Sure. What are you doing? I... What? I don't know. I, well, my mouth tastes so bad all of a sudden. So maybe even beyond that, you don't believe me, but it's so funny. It's like automatic. He's just waiting for the Altoid. His mouth starts to get really dry, and some of you have had that, I'm sure. Uh, but it's that automatic conditioning, and that's kind of what identity is. It's like built-in conditioning for your soul. You make decisions based on the identity you carry around with you every day, and it matters because the best predictor of what you're going to do, the behaviors how you spend your money, the, the amount of time you invest in a, in a significant relationship, all of those things are predicted and they're really conditioned by your identity. And it's an incredible thing because at first, I don't know if I believe that, but Paul would go on to write, if, if you look through, we're not going to scan through every chapter, but Paul goes on to write after chapter two, chapters three, four, five, and six. And this is what he writes. In chapter four, he says, because you are children of God, People who are alive in Christ, disciples of him, because we are children of God, we are pursuing unity and honest people. Our world needs more unity and more honesty. We crave people that don't want to divide but want to unite us together. We crave a country in which we at least line up on the basics of our beliefs and the basics of morals, and it just doesn't feel like that right now. We crave businesses and relationships and online worlds in which people are just honest, sometimes brutally honest. We need that kind of life. And because we are children of God, we are pursuing unity and we can be honest people. That's what Paul writes in chapter four. Chapter five, Paul writes, because we are children of God, we are self-controlled and we're God honoring in our relationships. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if you had the best marriage on your street? Do you think people would notice? Do you think people would start to go to you for advice? I'm guessing probably. What if Christians were known for having the absolute best marriages on the planet? What if Christians were known for honoring women in their dating relationships? What if Christians were known for showing dignity and respect and honor to the men and women that they choose to do life with? What, what if that was us? What if Center Church was that kind of place where people walked in like, I don't know what you guys are smoking together, but you all really, really love each other. Like, what if it was that kind of place? Not the smoking part, but the unity part, right? If we honored one another, like, it would be contagious. It would be hard to keep people away from a community that's honest, that's pursuing unity, that's self-controlled, that's not driven by their desires, but they are led by their identity in Christ. Paul would write in chapter six, he keeps going and says, because we are children of God, we can be strong in our inner life and bold in our outer life. We can have resolve. We can be mentally secure. We can be not controlled by anxiety, depression, loneliness, but we can find real community and real wholeness in our relationships with one another and in our identity to Christ. If we had that kind of life, the world would wonder what is going up with these people? What is happening with them? 
And if we are bold in our outer life, see, many of us in the room have followed Jesus for a, a long time, some of us more than even I have. And yet you've never really turned the corner on not just being strong in your inner life, but bold in your outer life. When people ask, why, why do you make decisions that way? Wait, why, wait, hold on. Why did you spend a Sunday morning that was sunny in August to show up to church? Why do you do that? Why do you cut vacation short to come to church? Like, why do you do, why do you give money to an organization that meets in a gym? Why, why do you do any of those things? Like, it's a little odd. And you could be bold in your outer life to say, let me tell you why. Here's how God has changed me. When your neighbors start to see that you interact with your kids different, when you treat the, the people who throw trash on your lawn differently than other people would, they would ask, why, why do you do that? What's the reason that you're doing that? And you could be bold in your outer life. Because of your identity, you can pursue unity. You can be honest. You can have God-honoring and self-controlled relationships. You can be strong in your inner life and bold in your outer life. And so many of us just continue to let that insecurity to define our identity just day after day. And we just don't even recognize it. We live with lies that were ugly, that were not worth the time, that were embarrassing, that were not articulate, that will never earn enough, that will never be content, that we don't do the right things and we don't say the right things. And our identity just gets misplaced and we believe lies all the time and we live out of that. And for many of us, it it starts with that insecurity. My insecurity at times in my life is deafening. I, I don't know what yours is like, but sometimes it is the absolute loudest voice in my head. It's hard to even sometimes comprehend decisions or think about what are the next couple of years going to be like because I'm crippled by insecurity. And you've probably lived in that. Maybe you sit here right now and that's exactly where you are. That insecurity is literally defining the decisions that you're making in life. And, and speaking and, and leading are interesting things because you can be on a platform and still be the most insecure person in the room. You can be leading organizations. You can be leading your business well. You can be hitting all of the sales benchmarks throughout the year and still be the most insecure person in the room doesn't change that core identity. The only thing that Paul says will change that is making sure you know the truth, to know what God says about you, to live in the identity he's given you. And it doesn't matter the environment, truthfully. See, I come from, some of you know my family, I come from an incredible family. My parents have been married over 30 years. They are incredibly supportive. They call me, they say I love you, like they do all of the right parent things. They helped me with my grades when I was in high school. They were nice to me when I was getting straight Fs. <laughs> like they, they were all the right things, okay? You, like they were just, they were great parents. And many of you know our staff and the community that we have here, incredibly supportive. You guys are some of the most encouraging, loving, compassionate people I've ever been around. All that to say, every time I walk off the stage, I hear lies in my head. That wasn't good enough. You'll never get it done. You're just too young. You don't matter. No one sees you. And I believe those lies and it drives behavior. And if I'm really honest and I'm not looking for a pity party, you guys are so loving and kind, you're all gonna come up and give me a hug and that's okay. I'm not asking for that. I don't say that so you feel bad. 
I'm saying that because too many times we allow those insecurities to define our identity and it does not have to be that way. God has made us for more. He has made us for an Ephesians 2 life where we could say, I was dead, now I'm alive. I used to be driven by insecurity. I don't live that way anymore. I used to think that uh, my only relationships would be marked by emptiness, loss, disappointment. I don't live that way anymore. I have relationships that are whole and God-honoring and self-controlled. I, I don't have to live in the narrative that my marriage will always be a chore, that my relationships will always just be about physical intimacy, that, that my lack of forgiveness is gonna plague me forever. We don't have to live that way. God has made you and I for more, but it starts with knowing what he says about you. So many of us haven't spent enough time, and I've been here in the scriptures to even know what does God say about me? And there's gonna be an opportunity later on after the service is over. I've printed out just 50, and so you're gonna to need to scramble to get them. I printed out the first 50 to grab them at the welcome table. It's just a statement list of who you are in Christ. And maybe this week you start your day with that. I know for me, I'm gonna start my day like that. I'm gonna say, I don't wanna be defined by insecurity. I want my identity to be rooted as a son of God. I wanna place my identity in the right place. I'm gonna start it with that. And I think it's funny because this list was published by the Seattle Seahawks, which is a little weird. Like they are a national football team. And, and some of you maybe know their story. Many of them are Christ followers on the team. And they begin some of their practices and coach meetings reading this statement list of who we are in Christ as son and children of God. It's incredible. And I need that reminder. I don't play football particularly well. Uh, but all that to say, uh, we equally need that reminder. It doesn't matter where you are in life, whether you're a sports person or not. You, you need to know what God says about you. Maybe you start your day tomorrow with that list. Say, I'm going to define myself by what God says about me, not by my insecurity. And maybe you don't even have a relationship with Jesus in the room today. You're like, how would I even start that? I would love at the service close, I'll be up here. I would love to talk with you about that. Maybe you don't have that deep and defining relationship with Jesus and your identity is not in him. No matter where you're at, you can start today. You can have a fresh, new uh, born-again type identity today. It doesn't matter how far you feel. It doesn't matter how, how aloof God is to you right now. You can start with that new identity. Paul closes this incredible book by talking about the armor of God, by talking about putting on that identity. And I just want to read this over you before we close. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, here's what he writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Remember his schemes in Matthew 4. Identity, if you are a son, if you are a daughter, if you really are good enough, if you achieve enough, if your kids are great enough, if, if, if he challenges our identity. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It doesn't have to do with people, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then 
with the belt of truth. What God says about you, buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness, holy living in with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He reminds them. He begins this letter, chapter one and two, saying, guys, this is your identity. Ephesians, center church, this is your identity and continue to live in that. No matter what the enemy throws at you, you can root yourself in that so that you're not defined by insecurity so you can build your life on things that matter. And that's really what's at stake. Maybe you sit here and say, yeah, yeah I'll figure that out. <laughs> I've had people turn down invitations to church and say, I'm just not ready. I gotta figure some stuff out first. I've gotta get my life right and I've gotta make sure my identity's in place and then I'll walk into that kind of place. Then I'll get baptized. Then I'll make decisions that really will change my eternity. But that's just building your life on a half truth that you can do it. It's building your life on the false pretense that you and I are somehow good enough to have identity, to have an identity that really will go the distance, to have an identity that will allow us to make God-honoring decisions, but it's not enough. We have to intentionally, whether it's reading through that list or memorizing this passage of Scripture or getting into deeper community or serving or, or starting to think about your life as being bold, we have to build our lives on God's truth. When our life is built upon that kind of truth, when you and I decide we're gonna make decisions based on what God says, not based on what the world says, not based on what we feel, not based on the lies that we've grown up believing, we will build our life on something significant, something eternal, on a foundation that doesn't crumble or erode. And that's the life God has for you. That's the life I'm craving. That's the life I wanna live into today.